Assalamu alaikum warahmatullah. This is Abdurrahman, and you're listening to the Heartwork series on the Qalam podcast. Heartwork is a weekly session at the Roots Community Space in Dallas, Texas, where young professionals come together and discuss ideas and concepts on how to grow in their religious practice and their relationship with Allah. This particular series is called The Messenger, where the focus of the discussions will be on lessons from the life of the Prophet Muhammad wasallam. If you enjoy and appreciate these sessions and these series, then please consider becoming a sustainer of the Roots community space by going to rootsdfw.org sustain. We really appreciate your contribution. We appreciate your prayers. And we appreciate you listening to the programming that we put out. Jazakumullah khairan. Wassalamu alaikum warahmatullah. Alrighty. Bismillah walhamdulillah. Wassalatu wassalamu ala rasulillah. Wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'een. Welcome back everybody to our study of the Prophet Muhammad life. Um... This is our weekly Monday night heart work session for young professionals. So for those of you who uh, attend regularly, welcome home. Alhamdulillah. It's good to have you guys here. Alhamdulillah. Uh, for those of you who this is your first time, welcome. Welcome to Roots. Um, you know, the, the stay-at-home orders have us feeling a little bit empty, but alhamdulillah, we, we've, uh, we've kicked up our programming online, so it's filling in the void. Alhamdulillah, seeing everybody here uh, on our Instagrams. Uh, and social media and Facebook and everything every day, alhamdulillah. Um, so last week, uh, we were able to make it through about halfway through the Battle of Badr. And um, alhamdulillah, you know, we, we covered uh, a good amount, um, but we weren't able to get all the way through. So inshallah, today we're going to finish the Battle of Badr, and we're going to finish all of the aftermath of the Battle of Badr. Because if you look at the Battle of Badr, there's like... There's like uh, bits and pieces of aftermath that kind of play into it as well with regards to like the what they did with the spoils of war afterwards and um, what they did with the, the prisoners that they captured and sort of discussing a lot of those things um, and the lessons that we can take from those things. So where we left off was that before the battle, leading into the battle, um, you had Utbah bin Rabi'ah who was trying to convince everybody on the Meccan side uh, not to fight, right? So you have one of the Meccan leaders who's basically trying to convince everybody on the Meccan side not to fight. Um, and this was for a few different reasons, but ultimately it's because there was a deep discomfort that he felt in going against the Muslims, um, especially when they had sent their scouting report over to go and inspect the Muslim camps. They felt that the Muslims, even though they were smaller in number, even though they were not prepared, they were ill-prepared, they had just felt like the Muslims were just absolutely, uh, you know, the morale was high and they were committed. And we talked about last week this sort of reciprocal graph, right? So when the Quraysh started, they were really confident. And as they got closer and closer to the battle, their confidence kept going down, 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 down. When the Muslims began, their confidence was not so high up. And as they got closer to the battle, their confidence kept climbing and climbing and climbing. And one of the lessons that I wanted to sort of really strongly point out here and iterate here was that whenever we engage in something that is problematic, whenever we engage in something that is sinful, we should have a moment of hesitation. We should have moments of hesitation, right? Like this this moment of hesitation, granted it's coming from Urtbah bin Rabi'ah, who's like one of the enemies of Islam uh, at this point, but nevertheless, it's still a human characteristic that when a person knows that something is not a good idea, 
that they're able to sort of dial back and reconsider and reevaluate. And this is this is something that's really, really essential for a person's spirituality. Um, just because something, you know, nothing is complete until it's complete. Nothing is done until it's done. And so for for a person who's going into in this case it's a battle, but for a person who's going into like a, some sort of like sinful activity or some sort of activity that is against what they know, an action that they know uh, is problematic, then that hesitation, that moment of pause is actually a gift from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to make, uh, to make easier the decision to do something that's right, right? So like if I hit my snooze on my alarm for Fajr, you know, just because I hit the snooze doesn't mean that I've, I've done it, I've consciously decided. I can still get up and pray. I can still fight myself. I can still battle myself. So make sure, you know, one of the things that we talk about along with doing good deeds is make sure that you you keep the the make sure you keep the sensor in your heart alive. You know, everyone's heart has a sense, has a sensor for like the wrong things. Make sure that that sensor doesn't die. Because if that sensor goes away, then we won't have those hesitation moments anymore. We won't have those moments of of pause that allow us to to reroute, to make the right decision, to, to sort of go back a track. So sinful behavior, and the Prophet he said this. He said that sin causes the heart to feel uh, you know uh, uneasy. Sin should feel the heart to feel uneasy. You know it should you know it, it should make the heart feel not good, not well. Like that's one of the the, the ways in which Allah Taala designed our hearts is that. We have this purity of faith and we have the purity of the capacity of faith that sin should make us feel uncomfortable. And so we have that lesson here. Leading into battle, Urtba did not feel comfortable whatsoever. Urtba did not want to participate in this battle whatsoever. And that was advice that the Prophet himself, when he's witnessing this happening across the battlefield, he's seeing somebody go up and down the lines trying to convince people not to fight. He says to Hamza, you know, his, his, his uncle, radiallahu anhu, he says they should listen to him. Right, like they should listen to him. The Prophet basically said, like, props, you know, I gotta give him props where props are due. They should definitely listen to him. Um, during the battle, when the battle was happening, when the battle was occurring, uh, there was the initial stage where there was the duel where you had um Urtba uh bring out his son and his brother, uh Walid and Sheba, and they uh they fought uh you know against Hamza uh, Ali and Ubaidah, right? So they had the initial, the way that the battles would happen back in the time of the Prophet ﷺ, back in those times, was that they would start the battle with like a duel. Uh, and, that, and that would sort of either boost up or give morale to one side, or it would, you know, give one side a chance to kind of get the reality of the situation set in. And so the Muslims had overwhelmingly won this duel. Um, Ali, عن, he uh, you know, he ended his opponent, Hamza ended his opponent, and Urbaidah, Urbaidah, even though he did not, uh, Urbaidah ibn al-Harith, even though he did not end his opponent, uh, Urtba, he fought against Urtba, Urtba actually had a fatal blow that he had dealt to him. Uh, when he, when they had dealt each other those blows, Hamza and Ali went over and they ended Urtba, so that was the end of his life. Now, an interesting point here, subhanAllah, is that Urbaidah, uh, Ibn al-Harith, when they pull him back to the to the camp to kind of like nurse his wounds, even though you know his leg is cut so badly, he's bleeding so profusely that his life is it, it looks like it's going to end. 
um, the Prophet Muhammad he takes him and and they're they're trying to you know obviously treat his wounds medically and they're trying to pray for him make dua for him and the Prophet he takes him and he takes his head and it's becoming clearer and clearer that his life is going to end and the Prophet places Ubaidah's head in his lap and Ubaidah asks the Prophet he says Ya Rasulullah am I a martyr for you today like did I get it am I a martyr for you today and the Prophet says to him, "Yes, of course. Like, look at look at what you've done. Look at what you've gone through, and look at you know, look at what's happening to you. Of course, you're a martyr. Of course, you're a shaheed." And Ubaidah he says, "Then Abu Talib, Abu Talib would have been proud of me keeping my oath, of my oath." He's referring to something that happened a long time back, right? Like years and years back. What happened a long time back? Abu Talib, he, even though he was not Muslim, he was pledging to defend the Prophet Muhammad from the harassment and the torturing that was occurring at the hands of Quraysh. And he gathered everybody who was from the family of Abdul Muttalib, and he gathered those people who were interested in defending the Prophet And he recited some poetry, and essentially in the poetry he said, like, we're not going to give up, we're not going to give up our family, and we're not going to give up Muhammad, because he's part of our tribe, he's part of our family, even if it means that we have to give up our own lives, then we will do it, right? Even if it means that like we have to defend him with our own lives, then so be it, that's what's going to happen. And so that happened like a decade prior, subhanAllah, he made this proclamation of defense of the Prophet Muhammad in Mecca, and now that they're fighting a battle in Badr after they migrated to Medina, Ubaidah, he remembers that moment, and as he's passing away, he tells the Prophet Ya Rasulullah, I kept my promise. I kept my promise. I promised on that day that I would never let anyone come near you. And that if anyone even tried to come near you, Ya Rasulullah, I would give my life. I would put my life on the line to defend you. Ya Rasulullah, have I, have I kept my promise? And the Prophet Sallallahu says, you've kept your promise. It's like a very emotional moment between the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu and one of the greater companions, uh, one of the, 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 the companions of Badr, may Allah Ta'ala be pleased with him and have mercy upon him. And he passed away shortly after that. So this was, you know, the way in which the battle began. And the battle then, the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu you know, he was, he, he, he was commanded, some say that he received like, you know, revelation or wahi, but he was commanded to take, uh, you know, stones and, he, and, and, and dust and pebbles and dirt and throw it towards the Quraysh. And so he did this in the beginning of the battle and he said, you know, may your faces be humiliated, like may you guys be humiliated. And he threw this, and there are narrations from the other side, from Quraysh, where they say that suddenly we didn't know what had happened, but suddenly we felt dust and rocks and dirt hitting our bodies and faces, right? Even though the Prophet is like hundreds of yards away from them, and he just tossed it in his own proximity, uh, he did this, subhanAllah, and Allah Ta'ala actually references this in the Qur'an, and he says that, you, you did not throw that, but we threw that. Like Allah Ta'ala tells the Prophet Sallallahu that you, you thought you threw it, right? but you didn't throw it. We threw it, right? So this is a reference to that moment uh, in which the Prophet Sallallahu he threw this dust and miraculously, it was one of the divine miracles of this battle, miraculously it actually made contact and hit the faces of these people. Now, what is the lesson there? What is the lesson there? Like this action, this miracle, obviously with miracles, it's hard for us to sort of extract lessons a lot of times because a lot of these miracles are specific to the Prophet Muhammad 
Like a lot of the miracles that we'll see are specific to him. But there are some lessons that we can take. And the one that I want to really point out here with this moment where the Prophet is tossing dust towards the Quraysh and it hits them in the face is that there will be some things in life where Islam will ask us to do something. Right? Islam will ask us to do something. Right? Make dua. Give charity. Right? You see poverty? Give charity. And naturally, like the, the, the sort of very logical, hyper-secular, uh, postmodern mind will be like, well, how is that going to accomplish anything? How is that going to accomplish anything? Right? Like, how, how, if I do this one thing, like, how is it going to accomplish, like, the goal that I'm doing it for? Like, me giving charity to end poverty, like, how is that going to accomplish anything? The Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam here is, 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 is tossing sand and dirt and pebbles in the direction of the Quraysh as a symbolic you know, humiliation of them. And, and one might argue, like, what was the point of that, right? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala asks us to do things, and the Prophet asks us to do things, not because we are the ones in control, not, not because we are the ones in control of that solution, but because what? Because Allah ta'ala wants us to do that, and it's up to Him, it's up to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to, to, to carry out what the action can do. It's not up to us. Our job is to do the action. Our job is to engage in the behavior. If Allah Ta'ala says, give sadaqah, it's our job to give sadaqah. Is our charity, is that $100 that you donate? Is that $1,000 that you donate? Any money that you donate, is that going to end poverty? Is it going to end hunger in the world? Is it up to you even to do that? No. It's up to you to obey. It's up to me to obey. It's up to Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala to take whatever good that we're doing and to apply it in the world, in the cosmos, in the universe as we know it. So here's a beautiful example of that. We sometimes become our own worst enemies by prohibiting ourselves from doing something because we say, what's the point? What's it going to accomplish? But we have these small miracles, subhanAllah, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He asks the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu other prophets, other anbiya, to do things that are called like asbab, the means, you know, uh, sabab or asbab. Allah Ta'ala asks us to take the means for the, for the miracle and then the actual miracle itself is up to Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta'ala to complete. And we witness that miracle, but ultimately it's not our miracle to perform, right? So in life, whenever we are asked to perform something that's of worship or of religion, don't ever have that, you know, they call it paralysis by analysis. Don't ever become so analytical. Don't ever become so hyper-analytical that you end up like stopping yourself from doing something because you think to yourself like, what's the point anyways? That's not what Allah Ta'ala is asking of us, right? It's not what He's asking of us. Azawajal. So, uh, the next point in the battle that was very interesting is that the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu you know, he, he, he taught and he emphasized, and this is mentioned also in Surah Anfal, chapter number 8, that the dhikr and the dua that should be made during battle was something that should not be let up, right? And this was a lesson that we kind of started to talk about last week, that the Prophet ﷺ, he encouraged them to make dua and make dhikr during battle. And, and the Qur'an actually mentions this. And this was a huge lesson in that our remembrance of Allah never should stop. It doesn't matter how difficult of a situation we find ourselves in. If something is going really bad, really south, 
we still engage. In fact, we even more fervently engage in the remembrance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because we recognize that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the only one that can, what, extract us from that situation or provide a solution to that situation. And so the Prophet he reminded his companions, you know, to keep making dua, keep making dhikr. And he reminded them and he said that, you know, by, by the one who holds my soul in his hand, by God, he's swearing by Allah. He says, if anyone here, if their life is lost, if you lose your life fighting in this battle, he says, and dedicating your life to Allah while you do it, moving forward and not running away, he says, you will be admitted into heaven by Allah directly. So he's, 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 he's trying to motivate these people as they step into a battle where they're outnumbered by one to three, right? Or three to one, if you want to put it that way. So it became actually a very difficult battle uh, for the Quraysh, which was very interesting. Because if you look at the numbers, Quraysh had over three times as many people. They were very well supplied and well stocked with resources and animals and uh, weapons and shields. So the fact that the battle was actually equal was a shock to them. And it was a huge morale boost to the Muslims. Now when the battle had begun, and this is where we kind of ended last week, the Prophet ﷺ retreated back to his base and he went and he fervently called out to Allah Ta'ala and he made this beautiful dua. He said, Oh Allah, please fulfill your promise to me. Please fulfill your promise of victory to me. And you hear, like when you read this dua, you hear like an element of pressure, right? And, and at times we feel like maybe uncomfortable, like, wow, that's a little bit uncomfortable to be speaking to Allah like that directly. You know, Allah, fulfill your promise to me. You promised me this. But there are some hadith that tell us that when it comes to the etiquettes of making dua, we don't force Allah because you can't force Allah. Nothing can force Allah. But Allah Ta'ala likes it when a person puts all of their pressure on him. Because that's a sign that you've relied upon him alone. When you've relied upon Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone, then you tell Allah that, Allah, I have no other way out. You're the only one. There's no other solution for this problem that I'm in. You're the only solution for me. So the Prophet ﷺ, he says that. He goes, Ya Allah, I'm, I'm appealing to you. I'm begging you to please fulfill your promise to me. If these believers are done, if we, get, if we just get rolled over and killed here, then no one will worship you on earth. Because what was at stake in this battle, and this is really important, it's, it's very important to realize the Battle of Badr was not just like a battle. It was actually a critical turning point in the existence of Islam in the world, obviously in Arabia, but also in the world, because if the Quraysh had won this battle, what was stopping them from just marching on one more hour, two more hours to Medina and just finishing off Islam as a whole? So when the Prophet is saying this, he's not being dramatic. He's being really honest. He's saying, Ya Allah, if you don't fulfill your promise to me, this might be it. This might be the end of worship of you on this earth as we know it. And he's begging Allah Ta'ala you know, from this. And he's raising his hands so high that his garment, his ridat, that his shawl that he wears over his, his upper body, it falls off of his shoulders. And Abu Bakr as-Siddiq, he comes to the Prophet and he went to him and he put his garment back on his shoulders and he said to him, Ya Rasulullah, he goes, don't push yourself so hard with your dua. Like, why are you forcing yourself so hard? He said, Allah will surely answer your prayer, right? God will never, ever uh, not answer your prayer, right? Allah Ta'ala will answer your prayer. And the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu he continued uh, making dua, but then, as we said before, he received revelation during a moment of, of rest, right? When the Prophet Sallallahu received revelation, he would receive it in different ways. Sometimes he would receive it while he was awake, 
Sometimes he would be overcome with slumber for a brief moment and receive revelation in that period, right? And so he would, subhanAllah, he would fall asleep. And so this moment he fell asleep and he woke up and he was like not stressed out at all, not anxious whatsoever. And he said, Abu Bakr, he sp- yeah, Abu Bakr, he spoke to Abu Bakr, he said, yeah, Abu Bakr. He goes, Besh-, he goes, Abshir, he's like, good news. He goes, victory is from Allah Ta'ala. And he goes, I see the angel Jibreel on his horse on top of the battle, on top of the, uh, the cloud of the battle, like the dust of battle. So like I see Angel Jabril with his with his army like right above the battle like they're waiting to descend, they're waiting to come through like Allah Taala has sent his help. And then we talked about last week and this is where we finished. You know some of the uh, some of the the miracles of those angels coming down, how they were dressed and how the kuffar, the Quraysh were seeing them and they were like these guys came out of nowhere. Ali radiAllahu anhu said that you know he couldn't see he couldn't see them he couldn't quite make them out but like. That when they went by him, it was like the strongest gust of wind he's ever felt in his life. That they were like multiple, multiple feet tall, and they had these whips, and they were like really, really intimidating creatures. They were on these horses that were black and white, and they were wearing black turbans. Jibril was wearing a yellow turban. And so there was very interesting descriptions of these angels, and they were fighting alongside the believers in battle. And the Prophet Muhammad, you know, he saw this and it became a good news for him. And the Muslims saw this and it became exciting for them. And the Quraysh, they saw this and it became horribly, you know, uh, demoralizing for them. That they saw this and they realized, like, this is it. You know, like, what is this? Where did these mysterious uh, warriors come from? And so they, they were fighting. And as they were fighting, because they were being, uh, because they were being attacked by angels now, now some of the, ret- the retreating began to happen. Because remember, when it was just humans, when it was just human beings, it was an equal battle. Now that the angels are coming in and they're tipping the scales, Allah Ta'ala is sending his help, they're retreating. And who is the first to retreat? Who is the first one to retreat? This is a very interesting lesson. Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta'ala tells us this in Surah Anfal. He says that the first one to retreat was Iblis. Because if you remember from before, Iblis took on the appearance of Suraqat bin Malik. He took on the appearance of one of the, uh, the Quraysh's like, co-tribesmen. And Suraka, he did this in order to motivate the Quraysh to go battle because they were having second thoughts. So Iblis took on this image of Suraka. It wasn't actually Suraka. He took on this image of Suraka and he told Quraysh, go and fight because he wanted to motivate them to go to battle with the Muslims. So Iblis like did this whole masquerade to basically encourage uh, you know, the, the, the Quraysh to go to battle. When he saw the angels, when Iblis saw the angels... He started to run. Now Suraka starts to run. Okay. Now the people that he promised, the people that he swore that he would be with them, they grab him. And they say to him, like, where are you going? Where are you running to? The battle is happening. What's happening? Why are you running away? And Suraka, a.k.a. Iblis, right? He appears as a human being, but he's actually Shaitan. He pushes the guy down. The person who grabs him, he pushes him down. And he says, I fear Allah. Iblis says this. He says, I see them coming and I fear Allah. And I'm, he basically says, I'm out of here. And the Quran says he turned back on his heels and he ran as fast as he could. He dipped as fast as he could. There's such a huge lesson there, subhanAllah. Iblis, shaitan, makes promises to us that he himself won't even keep. Like he promises us and tries to motivate us and encourage us to do things that he himself won't even do. 
it's like the lowest of the low. You know, Shaitan, he's so miserable. He's so miserable that he wants to motivate us to destroy ourselves and he won't even hang. He won't even keep with the person. Like he's so, he has, he's so disloyal. He has no loyalty, right? And, and this is true because you see even on the Day of Judgment, in the Quran, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in Surah Qaf that Jibreel is going to say to Allah that, uh, you know, I, you know uh, I didn't do anything. I didn't do anything. I just whispered into their hearts and I left them. It was their choice, right? It was their call. Like, I didn't do anything. So if you look at it, subhanAllah, shaitan tries to like cozy up to us and tries to influence our nufus, our nafs, and tries to make false promises to us that everything's going to be okay and you can make tawbah later and don't worry about it and it's not that big of a sin and look at everybody else. There's so many other people sinning in the world. You're fine. Shaitan tries to use these sort of platitudes on us and then... When push comes to shove, when the, when the moment's happening, he will abandon you. And he will abandon me. Just like he abandoned Quraysh. And just like he's going to abandon us on the Day of, ju- on the day of Judgment. On the Day of Judgment, we're going to argue to Allah. Oh Allah, right? Shaitan was the one who did it to me. Shaitan was the one who influenced me. Punish Shaitan. And then subhanAllah, what does Shaitan say back? قَالَ قَرِينُهُ رَبَّنَا مَا أَطْغَيْتُهُ وَلَكِنْ كَانَ فِي ضَلَالٍ بَعِيدٍ that I didn't do anything. They were in their own error on their own. I just kind of fanned the flames a little bit, right? And Allah Ta'ala will, will confirm that in fact that shaitan was correct in his assessment. That it was our responsibility, right? Like when shaitan left the Quraysh, who is ultimately responsible now? It's the Quraysh. It's, they're responsible for this situation. So this is, the, this is one of the amazing things about the people who turn back on their heels is that shaitan was the first of them. Shaitan was the first to go back on his heels to run away from the battle. Now, the Prophet ﷺ, one of the things that he never lost in the battle itself was his moral ground and his ethical standing, right? Like a lot of times they say that, you know, uh, in, in fighting that, you know, or in war, that there is no, like, morals, right? There's no ethics. But this was a time in which the Prophet Wasallam he was, he, he, he exemplified those ethics and those morals and his character. His character never, ever dipped, right? It never, ever dipped, subhanAllah. So one of the things that he did was he let every soldier from the Muslims know that there are a few people in this battle on the other side that have been brought against their own will. Like they weren't brought here by themselves. They were brought against their own will. And because they were brought against their own will, we're not going to kill them. If you see them, you're not supposed to kill them. But you can capture them, but you're not supposed to kill them. Right? Because they were brought against their own will. Even if they're engaged in fighting, just capture them. Don't kill them. Uh, This included Al-Abbas, his uncle. It was basically Abu al-Bakhtiari, Al-Abbas bin Abdul Muttalib, individuals who were from the tribe of Banu Hashim, uh, who didn't want to come, but they were forced to come uh, outside of their own will. So in this moment, uh, there were some, you know, there were some moments, there were some ups and downs, but ultimately, once the angels appeared, it became evident that the Muslims were going to have their clear victory. Now, as people started to escape and run away, uh, one of them was Umayyah bin Khalif. Umayyah bin Khalif was also one of the leaders, much like Utba, Abu Jahl, Abu Lahab, Umayyah bin Khalif. Umayyah bin Khalif is probably most famous uh, 
uh, in the Islamic, uh, you know, in, in our study of Islamic studies as, as, as adults and as children, as the individual who tortured Bilal. So you remember the story of Bilal when he had the boulder on his chest. Um, Umayyad bin Khalaf was the individual who tortured him and, and many, other Muslim, many other Muslims. But he was the one who tortured Bilal. So Umayyad bin Khalaf, he, um, he wanted to torture as many Muslims as he could. And that was kind of like what he was known for. So you can imagine in this battle, he has a lot of enemies. But interestingly, he had one individual that he had a relationship with prior to Islam. And that was Abdurrahman bin Awf. So Abdurrahman bin Auf happens to come upon him as he's trying, Umayy bin Khalif is trying to like escape. He's trying to, um, you know, weasel his way out. And Abdurrahman bin Auf, he holds his sword up to him. And he's like, you know, preparing to fight him even though they're friends. And Umayy bin Khalif, he tells him, he's like, we're old friends. He goes, why are you going to fight me? And Abdurrahman bin Auf, he says, okay, fair enough. Umayy bin Khalif says, you know, why don't you, why don't you take me instead? As a prisoner, like take me alive, basically, and then eventually, what he's what he's planning, what he's strategizing for, is that you know they'll ransom for me, they'll pay for me, and then I can go back to Mecca, right? So just take me as a prisoner because it's either dead or alive. You can take me dead or you can take me alive. So take me alive. So Abdurrahman bin Auf he agrees and he puts down his sword and he puts down his armor and and, and the stuff that he was going to fight with, and he uh, apprehends Umayyad bin Khalaf and he starts to take him back to the area where they're keeping their captives and their prisoners. And they come across Bilal. They come across Bilal. And Bilal sees Umay bin Khalaf. And I want, again, this is like really important now, right? Because we're talking about people. We're talking about this is real. This is history. What do you think Bilal feels? What, do you, what, what, what can you even, can we even put words to what he feels? This is the first time now that he's seeing the man that caused him so much pain, that tortured him nearly to death before Abu Bakr as-Siddiq you know, paid for his freedom subhanAllah so Umayyah bin Khayyab he says Bilal says to Umayyah he goes Umayyah the head of shirk the leaders of the mushrikeen he said I'm gonna die before you walk out of here alive Bilal says over my dead body you're not walking out of this battle alive Right now, it's interesting, right? Because Abdurrahman bin Auf has him as a has him as a prisoner, so he's being taken to prison, to the to the to the war prison, and Bilal's like, nah, it's not it's not happening, right? After what you did, there's no you're not captive, it's you or me, right now. So Abdurrahman bin Auf he tells Bilal he goes he goes Bilal he says, I I am, I'm taking him I have him he's it's under control don't worry. And Bilal says, no, I'm not letting this happen. And then Abdurrahman says, look, you can't violate this. I've taken him as a prisoner. You can't just come in and kill him. There's codes here. There's codes of war. So Bilal, when he sees that Abdurrahman is set on taking him as a, as a prisoner of war, Bilal says, oh, supporters of Allah's cause. Oh, Muslims. He says, here is Umayyah, the head of the mushrikeen. One of the heads of the mushrikeen. He goes, I'm going to die if he survives. Like, may I die if he lives. At that point, a group of Ansar came to Bilal's help and they surrounded Umayyah bin Khalaf. And they took him and his son and they ended up causing them their fatal blows and ended up killing them. Now, 
one of the interesting lessons here that I thought when I was reading this, I thought it was very interesting, subhanAllah, is the humanity within people. There's two stories here that, that are very obvious. Number one is Abdurrahman bin Auf and his sympathies because he's an old friend, right? So he's somebody that, even though he's not like letting him go, Abdurrahman bin Auf is not breaking the rules. He's not like, oh yeah, it's fine. No, he's saying like, this guy is an old friend. You know what? One of the one of the ways that we can get him is is prisoner. I'm gonna I'm gonna lock him up in prison, and we'll let the Prophet Sallallahu deal with him because they didn't know that they were gonna ransom them yet. So Abdurrahman bin Auf, it wasn't like he was like, oh, you know what? He'll eventually get away. It's fine. No, they didn't know. They could have executed them. They could have kept them. Like there's so many different. So Abdurrahman bin Auf is just saying like, this is the least I can do for all the relationship that we had. You're gonna be in prison, right? Which is again not like a good thing. It's not a good solution. Bilal, on the other hand has like the very human reaction of trauma, right? Which is like, what? Like, this guy tortured me. This guy nearly killed me. If it was, and everybody else, and all the other people that he tortured and killed. If it weren't for Abu Bakr, like, you know? And subhanAllah, these are both companions of the Prophet And they have their humanity. You see that Bilal is struggling. Like, he's struggling, you know? And you see that Abdurrahman, Bin Auf is also struggling. He, it's difficult for him because he has they have a backstory, right? And eventually Bilal ends up triumphing in his cause, trying wanting to kill Umayyah. But this is again a moment of tension, right? And this is actually it's so important for us when we deal with people, when you deal with individuals, to never just look at what's on the surface. Right? You read these narrations and you're like, what was Abdurrahman thinking? Why was Abdurrahman bin Auf so cool with him? Why was he, he was like a, he was like an enemy of Islam. Why would he take him in like that? You, he, first of all, he wasn't cool with him. He was taking him in as a prisoner, which could have ended up meaning his death as well. But he was like, he had an existing relationship with him, right? The second is someone could say, why was Bilal so harsh? Like things were under control. He was apprehended. Umayyah was apprehended. Why did Bilal react like that? Bro, how are you going to tell Bilal not to react like that? When, when, when he sees the, the face of his pain, the face of his trauma, right? So whenever you deal with people, whenever you deal with human beings and human hearts, you have to understand the context of where they're coming from and what they're dealing with. And here we have two very different stories of two very different contexts and how they dealt with it. The next individual from the Quraysh whose life ended at this point was Abu Jahl himself, the leader of Quraysh, Abu Hakam, Abu Jahl, the leader of Quraysh. Um, he was surrounded ultimately in one point of the battle when there was a lot of retreating happening. Because remember, he wasn't about retreating. That wasn't like what he wanted to do. Because he was so arrogant and he was so set on winning and having a party and a festival that he was like, I I'm not going to leave. So he was surrounded by some of the Ansar and some of the Muslims and they basically surrounded him and they all you know, lunged at him at one point and a companion by the name of Mu'adh ibn Amr, Mu'adh ibn Amr, he dealt him basically almost a fatal blow. Almost a fatal blow. Like he got him to the point where Abu Jahl was unable to move. And he was on the ground, but he was still alive. Okay? Um, so they both, there, there's two companions, Mu'awadh and, and Mu'adh. Mu'awadh and Mu'adh. They both dealt him these blows. Now when the battle was over, after all the Quraysh had retreated and the battle had ended, the Prophet ﷺ asked 
people to go and look for Abu Jahl to see if his body was there to confirm that he had passed away. Abdullah bin Mas'ud, who was known to be one of the smaller companions, very skinny, very small, right? Very thin. He was picked on a lot, right? He was picked on a lot. Abdullah bin Mas'ud was somebody that was uh, a shepherd in Mecca. And he was picked on when he accepted Islam because he was obviously smaller in size. And so people would gang up on him and bully him. And so he walks over and he sees Abu Jahl's body. And he thinks that he's dead, but he walks over and he sees that he's actually alive. But he's just incapacitated. He can't move. So he goes over to Abu Jahl and he takes his foot and he puts it right here on like his chest and his neck. So he puts his foot right there. And he says to him, he says, isn't this humiliating? Abdullah Mas'ud says this, so amazing. Just looks right in his eyes of the person that caused so much pain and death and torturing and suffering of the Muslims. And he looks at him, he just says, aren't you humiliated? Isn't this embarrassing? And you know what Abu Jahl says? What, is, what has Abu Jahl's MO been this entire time? What, what has his personality been this entire time? Abu Jahl this entire time is just arrogance through, like through on through arrogance. Zero humility, like is unable to accept a situation. You know, when the dream comes to Mecca that's, that's prophesizing doom, he's like, no. When Utba is trying to get people to, when Utba is trying to get people to back away from battle, No. When, he's, when they're trying to convince people, no, we're going to go party there. We're going to go win. He's just arrogant. So now, what do you think he responds? Abdullah Mas'ud has his foot on his chest, on his neck. And he says to him, isn't this embarrassing, Abu Jahl? Look at you. Look at where you've come to. Look at what's happening. Look at how your life's going to end. Right? After everything, look at where you are. And Abu Jahl says, this isn't embarrassing. He says, I'm not embarrassed. I'm not humiliated. It's just, it's just totally delusional. This isn't humiliating. This is fine. He says, I'm just, a, I'm just a guy that was killed. Many people are killed. It is what it is. Right? He's trying to justify it to himself, right? SubhanAllah. Even in that moment. Look at this. Like You would think that in that moment, like at least a little bit of remorse, at least a little bit of regret, begging for mercy, anything. He says, I'm just a man that was killed by other men. It is what it is. That's how people die. And he goes, he goes, anyways, tell me, did anyone really win the battle anyways? He goes, you guys, I mean, we retreated, but we only lost, you know, a few, like maybe a hundred people. We had a thousand people. We still have more left over than you do. Right? So he's like, just so immersed in his arrogance of how you read these narrations, like you just start laughing to yourself. You're like, how far gone could a person be? May Allah Ta'ala protect us from arrogance. What a disease. What a disease. Just unable to see the truth. And that's what the Prophet said. That you just refuse to accept the truth and you look down on people. And at that point, Abdullah Mas'ud dealt him his final blow with his sword and he ended Abu Jahl's life. Um, so when the battle ended, many of the leaders of Quraysh were dead. Many of the leaders of Quraysh that had caused so much pain and so much suffering and, and, and you know, so much, I mean, just destruction to the Muslims, they had ended up dying. Why were the Muslims able to win the battle? Why were they able to conquer this 
army that was seemingly inconquerable. Like, how were they able to do it? Obviously, number one, you know, it goes without saying. More like number zero, but it's number one. But it's like the the preface is that Allah Ta'ala gave them victory. Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta'ala gave them victory. And SubhanAllah, you know what's interesting is a lot of the scholars say about this battle, because statistically, like if you look at it on paper, there's no way the Muslims are going to win. But they still end up going and doing it, and they trust Allah and His Messenger. And so the scholars say that this battle is where the Muslims learned La ilaha illallah. This is where they learned it. Like they heard it before, and they accepted it, and they believed it, but this is where they felt it. That if you truly do something for Allah's cause and Allah's sake, nothing can stop you. Nothing. No amount of statistical difference, no data, nothing will stop you. This is where they learn La ilaha illallah. Badr is where the Muslims understood that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Hasbunallah wa ni'mal wakil, that they place all their trust on Him. And what a sufficient, you know, what a sufficient protector Allah ta'ala is. That's where they learned that. So this is the moment where we have, you know, we're not fighting in battles, but we're going up against tough odds. Everybody goes up against tough odds. Whether it's in your personal life, your professional life, everyone's going up against something. Never leave Allah. Never leave Allah. The minute you leave Allah, you've lost yourself. That's what Surah Al-Anfal says. The minute we leave Allah, we've, we've lost ourselves. If we've forgotten Allah, we've forgotten ourselves. If we stay with Allah, victory is there. It may not seem like it, but it will be. A couple of the other things that were pointed at to reasons as to why the Muslims were able to win. Number one, they submitted and followed one command. If you looked at Quraysh before, you saw that there were a lot of individuals, like Utba was one of them, Abu Jahl was one of them. Uh, and then you had individuals like Al-Abbas and some others who didn't even want to fight. It seemed like it was just a hodgepodge of people. So even though the numbers were there, their, uh, their obedience was not to one thing, right? They were all there for different reasons. And they were all following different sort of commands, right? So they weren't all like aligned and united under one, whereas the Muslims were united under Allah and His Messenger, right? So having unity is super important. If a person wants to be victorious, like unity is necessary. And Muslims in history, in Islamic history, Muslims have lost for the same reasons that Quraysh lost. Because they didn't follow, they didn't listen, right? To one uh, command. The second reason is that the Prophet did use strategy. And this is an important you know, point here, because spiritually, it's easy for a person to sort of say, you know what, I'm going to forego strategy and not... And, but you have to... You have to take the asbab. Whatever Allah Ta'ala provides for you, you have to do it. So he sent people to go and scout. He sent people to go and, and look. And he, he listened to advice. Remember Hubab? He listened to advice about the wells and blocking off the water supply. This is all strategy. This is not wahi. This is strategy. God has given us an intellect to, to, to be able to use in conjunction with revelation. Right? So... Don't abuse religion or spirituality by saying that, you know what, I'm just going to close my eyes and walk. And that's the way that Allah wants me to do. No, Allah Ta'ala wants us to think and Allah Ta'ala wants us to, Allah Ta'ala wants us to mentally process things and strategize and then rely upon Allah Ta'ala, right? As the hadith says, 
to tie your camel and then trust in Allah. Right? So there's two parts to this. So number two is that they're a strategy. Number three is that their goals could not be further apart. The goals of the Quraysh were like nothing. It was like party, celebrate, establish dominance, like, you know, nothing. They had no real goals. The goals of the believers were to maintain their Islam on earth in Medina, to protect their families. Like, their goals, one of the goals was noble and virtuous, and the other one was just garbage. And so the goal itself, it helped refine the morale of the army and helped keep them sincere in their fighting. And that's one of the reasons why they were able to win uh, that battle. Now, after the battle, right after the battle, right after any battle, there's something called al-anfal, the distribution of the spoils of war. What are the spoils of war? After war, obviously, you know, when there's the victors, when they win the battle, there are a lot of like items of material value that are left in the battlefield, as well as when an army retreats, there's a lot of items of material value there. So the question naturally is like, who gets it, right? Who gets it? So obviously the winners get it, but then how do you separate it? How do you distribute it? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he reveals an entire surah when he speaks about the battle of Badr, surah Anfal. And a large portion of the surah is actually dealing with the, um, Allah ta'ala is giving his divine guidance regarding this battle and teaching the believers about spirituality and their faith within the context of this moment, okay? Interestingly, subhanAllah, after the battle is done, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sends an ayah down to the Prophet where the ratio and the numbers of who gets what from the battle, from the spoils, is, distribu- is, is dictated. The distribution is already determined. It's not what people want. It's not what people... You know, it's not what people's feelings are, right? It's what their faith now is telling them, okay? And there were some companions who were bothered by this because the spoils of war, you know, the, the culture of Arabia was that the, the more glorious a person fought, the more they killed, the more they did this, the more they would take home. And that's not what Islam distributed, you know? They would take home like swords and shields and all kinds of stuff and they would take a lot home. And it would kind of like also, it would coincide with like the honor that they took from that battle. And along with that, a lot of them were still very poor. And so they looked at this as being almost like a, you know, an investment. Like I fought in battle, I worked hard, like I deserve to be paid. So subhanAllah, when this verse comes down, uh, you know, the Prophet he sets certain distribution percentages for certain people. And some of the companions didn't like it. And Allah Ta'ala, he Again, he sends down verses explaining that obeying Allah and his messenger is not just about fighting in battle, but it's about also obeying everything that comes down. And it's so powerful, man, subhanAllah, because if you think about it, these people have just given their lives. They've literally put their lives on the line in battle, and their test of faith is not done yet. (laughs) Like, their test of faith is not done. They just got done fighting a huge battle where they could have died. And now that they've won, Allah Ta'ala is sending down their final test. Allah Ta'ala is saying, this is the way that the spoils are going to be distributed. And if you agree, then you agree with Allah and His Messenger. If you disagree, then you disagree with Allah and His Messenger. And I want you guys just to like really just soak that in for a second. 
I want you to imagine like you've done so much with regards to your faith. Sometimes we climb like the huge, big mountain in life, like the challenge, and then we fail at the very end, right? Like we do something that's like so difficult and we accomplish it and conquer it. And then we like fail at the very end. You know what I always tell people, man, subhanAllah, may Allah protect us. I always tell people like the Fajr on the day of Eid. The Fajr on the day of Eid. What's it like? You know, after a month of the Ummah getting up to eat Suhoor and pray Fajr. What's the Fajr on the day of Eid like? What do you think the percentages are? Don't, I mean, don't, po- don't write anything, but like, how do you think for yourself? Have you ever missed Fajr on Eid? Right? Like we've accomplished this massive, massive goal of Ramadan, inshallah. You know, we've prayed our five prayers, we've prayed Tarawih, we've read Quran, we give Sadaqah, like we change ourselves. And then like to celebrate it, we miss prayer? Like to celebrate that, like we, we miss a prayer. Or like the day of Eid, we're like missing Dhuhr and Asr and Maghrib. Or like delaying them or putting them off or whatever. Why? To celebrate. Celebrate what? To celebrate the thing that we just did, but we're in celebration, we're like, we're like, do you do you see the tension there? So here, Allah Ta'ala sends like a final test. It's very interesting. These people have done so much. And Allah Ta'ala says, You've done a lot, but now can you do this? Right? Faith is fulfilled. It's a full cup. Right? Like sometimes it's easy to take a break after you've accomplished something big. But your faith has to be complete. And it has to be fulfilled. And you can't fail at those small, smaller, I should say, at the smaller challenges because of one's feelings. Right? Faith has to be present in the big times and in the small times. In the great challenges and in the small challenges. And so this became... A challenge, but alhamdulillah, when Allah Ta'ala sent down those verses, it realigned everyone's hearts uh, to accept that. Um, we will, inshallah, we'll do this one last point and then we'll, and then we'll conclude. Um, this battle was a huge moment for the Muslims and for the Prophet Muhammad in particular. You know, these were people that um, that caused so much pain to Islam and Muslims. And the Prophet ﷺ was able to win this battle and now secure safety for the Muslims in Medina. And, and you can just, you know, you can just feel like the, the euphoria when you read the narrations and you read the stories of the battle and how the Muslims were. You could just feel the, the relief and the happiness and the joy at being able to finally know that they were safe. And that there was no one that was plotting, you know, and, and there was no looming threat over their heads. But subhanAllah, like, at the highest of moments, right, Allah Ta'ala says that with, with difficulty there comes ease. And obviously with ease there comes difficulty. The Prophet Muhammad returned back to Medina and learned about the death of his daughter who was sick when he left. Ruqayya bint Muhammad, radiallahu anha, the wife of Uthman bin Affan. And this was the reason why Uthman wasn't in battle because the Prophet told him to stay back and take care of her. She became sick. 
he went out to battle when she, when he came back she passed away and this was just a devastating blow i mean as you can imagine the prophet muhammad sallallahu this was somebody that you know one of the reminders of his previous his 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 wife khadija radiallahu anha who had passed away his daughters his kids and she passes away ruqayya and subhanallah it just devastates him and they go to the, the 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 graveyard and they bury her and there's just a group of them who are just deeply intensely mourning and when you read the seerah you wonder subhanallah like what was the wisdom in allah subhanahu wa ta'ala testing the prophet sallallahu with the passing of his daughter his daughter man what was the wisdom in that exactly on the day of badr it wasn't before, it wasn't after. It was exactly on the day or the days of the victory of Badr. What was the wisdom in that? And Allah knows best. But some of the scholars have thought about this and they said that, subhanAllah, there is a reminder even in moments of joy that this life is not forever. That one of the... One of the most dangerous moments is when things are going well, a person can begin to think about the eternal nature of this life or you know, the false eternal nature of this life and they can become so invested in it because things are going well. And subhanAllah, difficult times, times that challenge us, they remind us that not anything is, nothing is eternal. Nothing lasts forever. And so in the moment when the Prophet ﷺ claims victory over people that have caused him so much pain for over a decade, and he has this joyous victory and the companions are celebrating and everyone's celebrating. They receive the news of the passing of his daughter and it, it puts into context the entire experience of the Battle of Badr. Why are we doing this in the first place? Because one day we're all going to meet Allah. And it's our job to stand by truth and justice and fight for it and defend our faith. And that's the reason why we did what we did. It wasn't about being victorious. It was about following Allah's command. So subhanAllah, it's a very painful way to come back home. And you can imagine the devastation that the Prophet ﷺ felt in that moment. We'll finish, we'll conclude with that today, inshallah, and we'll continue next time with post-Badr, the Medina post-Badr, inshallah, and how the Muslims transitioned forward and what occurred afterwards with prisoners and things like that. We ask Allah Ta'ala to accept from us and to grant us closeness to the Prophet ﷺ in this life and the next. We ask Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala to accept from us. You know, we're in the final moments here in Dallas before Maghrib. We ask Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala to bless all of us and to accept our fasting. I encourage everyone, inshallah, to engage in some dua right now. If it's almost time for you to break uh, your fast, I encourage everyone, inshallah, to, uh, you know, make dua, inshallah, inshallah. Make dua at Maghrib and Suhoor, each one, inshallah. Melanie, salam alaikum. Uh, these are every Monday night. Hard work, alhamdulillah. Anyways, everybody, barakallahu Love you all for the sake of Allah. Thank you guys for stopping by your home. And inshallah, we'll see you guys next Monday. Wassalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh.